This episode of Ticket Volume is brought to you by us, Invigate. Get service operations under control in no time. Get one free month of our software solution by going to try.invigate.com. Ticket Volume brings you the Director of Business Process Management for Third Era. He's been a trainer and consultant for decades with tenure across Third Era, of course, and as well as independently. He served a stint at tech systems and architecture roles and is well known for his experience as a senior trainer with ITSM Academy. Welcome to Ticket Volume, news and information for improving IT experiences. I'm your host, Matt Barron, and each week I chat with different leaders to share insights on service management, technology, and business. This episode is, of course, no exception. And hey, listener, what are you looking to learn more about? Leave a comment, connect with us, share a podcast with someone. Now, let's begin. Welcome to Ticket Volume, Michael Cardinal. Hey, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate the offer and the uh, invitation to be on the show today. Yeah, I mean, I can hardly resist. Uh, Many people don't know, but we have some lost footage from the last event where you and I actually, we talked, we disagreed about metrics a little bit. I said (laughs) how much I hate them. You said how much much I love them, right? Yeah. (laughs) But it didn't turn out very good, so we're we're not going to release that one. But I wanted to make it up to you. And really, actually, this is totally selfish but I wasn't able to get to your presentation at this last event. And I know that you were talking Mm -hmm. about one of your passions. Uh, You and Donna Knapp were both having this um, conversation about some management authors in our past. And I just kind of wanted to geek out with you about them and learn a little bit more about them. So let's talk a little bit about that. Where does your passion for these, these thought leaders from our past come from? So my background before coming into service management, I was a uh, instructor, adjunct instructor of history for roughly 20 years and particularly in social and cultural history and then uh, decided to make a leap over into service management uh, and leave the teaching gig for a while, go into consulting and training. And many people have asked me, Matt, how do you make that leap? And uh-huh. for me, it wasn't a big gap. Much of what I learned about being a historian and studying and teaching history was very applicable to service management. So when I came into the world of service management and management consulting and business business management, I brought with me that research, that knowledge seeking, that understanding that historians seek by looking at the past. And I, I add, you know, I brought a quote for me today or with us today from Kierkegaard, right? Soren Kierkegaard, uh, philosopher, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. And it's, it's one of the key things that I always keep in mind, right? We learn from the past that informs the future. And I think it's applicable to service management, to uh, IT, to business, uh, all of those things. That's such a good (laughs) quote. And I love it. You know, you, of all of us know very well history repeats itself it anyone who works on it knows that history repeats itself yep. if we yep. if we make a mistake and we don't change anything we are doomed to make the same mistake correct over correct over. problem management right there yep <laughs> yeah, yes exactly exactly <laughs> and you have this underpinning of pedagogy too right the correct. The, correct. the idea the how we learn how people learn how we can grok some of these concepts like all those layers are good. And this is such a good example about how, 
you know, what you learn in other careers and in other disciplines really does translate. And as a, Absolutely. As, as a spouse to a teacher, I'm always curious about how people can get out of the teaching <laughs> information just because, um, you know, it's rewarding, but not necessarily financially rewarding. At all no, times. right. And that, and that was a big part of why I moved, you know, the financials for, for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. uh, the, the principles and the ideas carry forward. I'm still a teacher at heart. I'm just applying it to a new context and a new subject. And that's kind of what you do as a historian because times change over, over the years. And so you have to adapt. And that's what I did. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Okay. So let's bust into it. Um, let's talk about specifically your presentation at, uh, I think it was Service Management World. What Service did you cover there? Yeah. So uh, myself and Donna Knapp, who is curriculum manager for ITSM Academy, really wanted to talk about where has service management come from. So many people talk about where it's going to, but not so many people have talked about where it's where it came from. And so we started to talk about uh, ITIL 4. And for many people, if, if you're familiar with ITIL, may not realize the 4 in ITIL 4 does not have to do with the 4th edition or version. It has to do with the 4th Industrial Revolution. And so we based our presentation on this idea of that many of the concepts and ideas of this fourth industrial revolution came from the third, second, and first industrial revolutions. And we kind of started looking at who were the influencers and who were the people that kind of brought that forward and kind of talked about the history, particularly of a fan of our, you know, we're a big fan of William Edwards Deming, uh, and I'll talk about him a little bit uh, today uh, as sort of the core of bringing those things. And our presentation was actually called, What Would Deming Do? So bringing those ideas forward as to if they were alive today, what would these leaders talk about and how would they help us? Okay. Got it. WWDD. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Need bracelets for that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Deming, you know, he's one of those names that uh, it's almost impossible to be in a professional setting for more than 10 years without hearing about the Deming cycle. Uh -huh. It's Plan, Do, Check, Act. I think Plan, that's Do, right. Check, Act. He actually, that that came, uh, he actually modified it over time to Plan, Do, Study, Act. Uh, he felt that that study idea of analyzing and looking things was very important and people weren't doing enough, enough of that. So it morphed into the Plan, Do, Study, Act. What a great concept. Um, and very wise to adapt it and change it as you see uh it fits and holy cow so many people have ripped that off and used it in so many different ways yep yep yeah um and think about the legacy that that leaves right this guy it, no one will ever forget the Deming cycle and which is odd because really as a person as a contributor Deming kind of got forgotten in uh, many ways right he himself as a contributor kind of fell away as many of these uh, individuals did uh, from those early days. And I think some of that Matt, comes from the fact that although the concepts like the, the Deming cycle have um, longevity, we like the new, the shiny, the, the attractive kind of things. And we tend to look at the newest versions of those, the newest iterations of those, I, being a history guy, love to kind of dig into that deeper and, and go back to those primary sources and say, well, where did this come from? 
Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, try to find, all right, who else thought about this kind of stuff? Who explored right. this? And you're Correct. chasing it back to Aristotle and philosophers yes, yes. from <laughs> Greek and Roman times. Yes, you, you've been in a presentation of mine where I talked about Socrates in relation to service management. So I'm very good at that kind of <laughs> weird connection over time. So. I love that stuff. The other, the thing about Downing too is like, I don't know where I've seen it, but I've seen his picture a thousand times. I, someone must be using his avatar on Twitter or something because I'm so used to seeing that one picture of him. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, there's a really famous sort of uh, three-quarter view picture of him uh, in his later years. And that's really when people started to rediscover him in the 1980s, uh, you know, sort of post-Japanese uh, growth, economic growth, which he ultimately helped back uh, post-World War II. But, uh, you know, he, he really started to come about in the 1920s, and a lot of his early thinking um, was in relationship to the growth of the big three automakers, uh, Ford and GM and Chrysler. So uh, he'd been around a long time, but again, he kind of fell off the radar. Yeah, exactly. As a war will do to you. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> and move over to Japan for a while and conduct a census is not very easy. Right, right. And when he got back to the States, I guess I read that Ford, like, asked him to come. Like, we need your help. We're hurting. Um, kind of an interesting history. Can you imagine a company calling you up? You don't need an interview. Just show up. Well, and it goes even further back than that. So back in that 1920s, 1930s spot, he actually approached the big three. So um, Sloan and Ford and Chrysler himself and said, hey, I've got a way to help you guys improve this industrialism that you're doing and move beyond some older ideas like Taylorism and others. And he uh, went to them and said, you know, I can help you. And they basically said, yeah, no, we don't need your help. We're doing fine. We're making a lot of money. And that's what it's all about. So he said, fine, I'll, I'll go to Japan after World War II and help uh, them over there. And then, yes, in the 60s, uh, I believe it was uh, one of the younger Fords asked him back, or maybe it was 70s or 80s, asked him back. And he said, nope, sorry, I came to you to Henry Ford back in the day and said, you know, you need to change things. And he said, no, and you haven't changed in 60 years. I'm not going to be able to help you now. If you haven't changed yourself in 60 years, there's no way I can assist you. So it was a very interesting story to tell, you know, Ford Motor Company, you know, to, to, uh, um, you know, suck an egg, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out of here. I don't right. <laughs> it's really interesting. This is this is an interesting dynamic. I mean, you 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 work for a consulting firm. I don't expect you to be their their spokesperson, but it it is kind of interesting to think about when you say no to clients. You know, and so, and yeah, and I, I um, you know, and I come to that through this knowledge of the past and through this experience and awareness of what's come before. And you, you started out by saying, you know, history repeats itself. Uh, for a while, when I was doing history, I, I was really into cyclical history and studying cyclical history and that, and saw these cycles that happen. And that's where it comes from, right, where I can kind of go, yeah, I don't think that's a really good idea. And it's not just Mike saying, it's, I don't like it or, or I think it's poor for you. It's coming from... Yeah, we've tried that every decade for the last hundred years, and it didn't seem to work. Do you think it's going to work now? And so I, I come from it from a, a, a place of knowledge and background and experience when I say no, not just uh, trying to be difficult. 
Okay, so let's talk about some of these other options. Sure, Because you, sure. you mentioned Taylorism. Yep. And it, Taylorism, I think that's one of those things where um, this might be one of those lessons learned, right? That, uh, if I remember correctly, he he's he's one of the first people who, who came up with the idea of quality management. Yeah, so he, he wouldn't have called it quality management. Okay. Ultimately, it becomes this idea of quality management. But if we step back, right, so you've got in the late 1800s, really from the late 1700s to late 1800s, these industrial revolutions, the first industrial revolution. And out of that comes the need for many organizations to ramp productivity, to increase output, to provide more goods. There was a burgeoning middle class uh, and business management class that was starting to emerge and people wanted more things they wanted more appliances and and those kind of things so taylor came along and started to take two uh, disparate ideas and apply them together and one was this this new idea of management and the second was this idea of science and he brought them together into a book called scientific management the problem with taylorism and this this concepts that he builds becomes taylorism was he forgot the human element, uh. right? It was very scientific. It was very objective. So he talked about there really are two classes of people in an organization, managers and brutes. So everyone who is not a manager was a brute. And managers were the people who had been educated and trained and were sort of the upper class, capable people. Everyone else was not smart enough in his idea, in his eyes, to do anything but carry pig iron from one place to another. And what he tried to do is use time motion studies to show how can we get somebody to move a block of iron from one place to another as quickly as possible, regardless of who that person was or their feelings or the humanity of that person. Uh, and people often think, you know, that with Ford, that he pulled a lot of his ideas, uh, came up with these ideas of the moving assembly line and that really what Ford did was pull Taylorism into the Ford Motor Company. This idea of moving things quickly and using time motion studies and kind of taking this very brutal look at people and seeing them as machines and not humans. So that's kind of where he's kind of the anti-hero in the story. Yeah. Definitely. That's why you can hear people kind of say Taylorism with a, a twinge. Yes. That's yep. too uh, bureaucratic, too too simple. Right. Yep. Too too objective. Yeah. And there's there's a point where you're kind of crossing that line, um, you know, and, and even today, I think there are, and you, again, back to cyclical history, uh, I was talking actually with Donna Knapp yesterday about chat GPT. And you're starting to see some of this kind of same ideas of Taylorism. They creep up every once in a while. You know, can we replace humans? Can we get rid of um, that side of it and make everything very objective? My personal opinion is we can't. Are there benefits to what Taylor did and learning about how things move and that? Yes, I think there are some some ideas, but he removed the the uh, humanity. Now, fortunately, there are people that come after him and they really sort of go against that idea and put the humanity back in. And for me, that's the biggest contribution that um, someone like Lillian Gilbreth or Deming or the other uh, people in quality management add. And that's when it starts to turn to quality is when it moves from that sort of scientific principle of management to this idea of quality is when they add back the human aspect of it. Awesome. Yes. 
because that is the key, right? Like, let's yep. take what we've learned and not turn people into machines, but also take like what worked. How right. do we get yeah. more efficient? Yes. How do we yeah. save our money? Okay, so you mentioned Lillian Gal- Gilbreth. So she is known for bringing he- the human element into quality. Is that right? Yeah, she was one of the first, and she was married to uh, to another famous individual, Frank Gilbreth, who was an economist. Uh, at the time. And Lillian was one of the very first industrial psychologists. So she was, again, taking these uh, sort of disparate ideas that hadn't ever been put together and bringing them together. So in this case, industry that uh, Taylor had talked about with psychology, the human side of things, and out of that grows things like human factors, uh, which we know today in terms of screen UI UX and experience management and how people interact with technologies we can kind of trace back to Gilbreth uh with that interesting well that's cool I mean that's we put out an episode or we put out a blog post recently about all the books that people have mentioned that's what I'm going after I want to know where that came from who yeah yeah who is discovering that stuff to begin with because um because that's where we're at, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a big trend, and this is right. the cycle. So now let's yes. go back yep. and look. Awesome. Yeah. 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 That's a good suggestion, good advice. And the, the one author that you put on this list that I found very fascinating, I couldn't stop reading about him, was Duran? Duran? Duran, Joseph Duran. Yeah, so there are three gentlemen who sort of form the triad of drivers or quote-unquote fathers of quality management. So Deming, obviously, but Joseph Duran and Philip Crosby. And Duran kind of takes the ideas both from Gilbreth and from Deming, and he's a little bit later than Deming, and he starts to build the process of quality management. Um, Where Deming, and if you read Deming's writings, um, take some time. He is, talk about stream of consciousness, right? He is stream of consciousness person. He needed an editor seriously. Uh, His books are difficult to read at times. Duran takes that idea, those ideas that he had and builds them into a process that come become known as the Duran Trilogy. And it is about planning, control, and improvement. And it mirrors in many ways the, um, the plan, do, check, act cycle or the plan, do, study cycle. He simplifies it down to those three things of planning, control, and improvement. So now we not only have these ideas around quality and what we need to do to improve things, but we have a way to do it. And Duran really brings that element to the picture. Yeah, yeah. The parts that really get me about his life is, number one, he lived to 103. Yes. Talk about quality. Born in Romania. So, you know, it wasn't... Many people look at at these uh, folks that we're talking about and kind of call them the the uh, white men and Asian men uh, thing, you know. And from the white man cycle, it's the American men. Um, but he really, you know, he wasn't from America. He was from Romania originally. So uh, yeah, so there is that international flavor. It wasn't just the U.S. kind of doing this. Yeah. I don't know. I try not to categorize people too much. We're just people. We um, are people. We are people. Right. And I, I just think it's great that, uh, you know, lots of people from around the world, and we see it even today, lots of people from around the world have brilliant ideas, um, you know, so it's not just emerging from one place or one time. With the good comes the bad, the yin yes. and the yang. You see it everywhere. You're yep. going to have people who are bigots, but also really smart. And yeah. 
Yeah. Take what's smart and throw away the bigotry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and that's right. That's kind of what we were talking about, right? Because Taylor had that a bit of that bigotry against people who were, quote unquote, beneath him. Um, mm-hmm. The book is a very, Scientific Management is a very easy, interesting read. You can actually get it on, uh, you know, it's past copyright, so you can get it uh, very readily online. Uh, very interesting. But you can you can hear his implicit bigotry in there and hatred for people who were just everyday workers. But, uh, you know, that's Gilbreth and Deming and Duran sort of bring that back in and say, yeah, it's great that we're doing this management, but we can't do it without the people who are doing the work. If you want to be famous forever, take a good idea with some flaws and remove those flaws. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then another thing I noticed is that Duran actually um, gave the eulogy at Crosby's funeral. And Crosby was much younger than him, so kind of fascinating. But let's talk about Philip Crosby. What what was his claim to fame? So his biggest Crosby's biggest claim to fame is actually this idea of zero defects. Yes, right. So he he had these sort of principles. Um, he really gave two two the two main ones. One was zero defects. The other is he's the one who established the definition of quality as conformance to customer requirements. Oh, right. So he was trying to um, put in place this idea of quality, that quality isn't just excellence. Everybody sort of equates quality with excellence. For these these folks, quality was more about meeting people's needs. Again, the people Mm -hmm. aspect of things, not about the excellence aspect. And so he put this definition of quality. He said, in order to achieve the definition of quality, you really need to have zero defects because a defect is anything that a person doesn't want. The problem, and he said later, I rue the day that I said zero defects because people lost their minds. Um, they, they made it this holy grail of things. And unfortunately, it's where things like Six Sigma come from, right? Is this idea of zero defects and yeah. this idea of we have to get to these five nines and, and those things. And he and my own personal experience and belief is no one notices those sub, sub, sub nanosecond differences between things. They notice the big things. Mm-hmm. So can we concentrate on some of the big things before we're really zeroing in? I love Six Sigma. I love the statistical, mathematical, um, analytical side of it. But like everything, people can carry it too far. And that's yeah. what happened with Zero Defects and Crosby. And he, he kind of like, yeah, why did you do that? That's not what I meant, you know. <laughs> it's a target. It's a goal, folks. But it was effective. I, I it, think was it was effective. He was yeah. working at an airline at the time, and they they cut defects down to like seven seventy percent or something like that. It was some crazy uh, number, and they never really achieved zero defects. It was just a concept, an idea. Right. Right. It's that vision of the future is where you're heading to. Yeah. And and again, unfortunately, you know, we, we have the famous lost metrics episode now. But, uh, you know, that was one of the things that I have always focused on with metrics is we tend to focus on what we didn't do instead of on what we did. So let's yes. focus on the positive side of thing again. And that's a thread that goes through all these authors and um, thinkers and engineers is focus on the positive. The negatives kind of fall away. Yep. And and look at your your adjacent um, metrics as well. You know, average speed to answer goes up. CSAT usually goes up too. 
Right. <laughs> yep. Yes. It's, they're all tied together. We can't look at things in in vacuums. And and again, Crosby kind of wanted people to look at the holistic picture of things, not really zero in on this zero defects idea, but to see it as as that vision for the future as we all move together. Yeah. Yes. He has this other quote. I think it was later in his life. I think it, once he was independent, I think he wrote a book that's just called uh, quality is free. Quality is free. Correct. Oh, I love that one too. Cause it, it totally makes sense that internal, it's not free. We know nothing's free, but right. internally it doesn't cost you anything to, to deliver that quality to the customer. And it's a major differentiator between manufacturers, builders of things or delivers of services. Yeah. And, and you, you hear those same, not so clear, but you hear those same things out of Deming and Duran this idea that quality does not have to cost you more, yeah. right? That quality can be done without adding cost. And part of that is because, and in, in later um, folks, um, uh, Hammer and Champy talked about this idea of three kinds of work, right? So you've got value-added work. That's the stuff that customers pay for. You have non-value-add. That's the overhead that you have to have. And then you have waste. And that's a lot of what uh, quality is about is let's get rid of that waste. That's what's costing you the most money. The other part of it is in um, quality is free is if customers want greater quality, they need to be willing to pay for it. <laughs> so as you as an organization, it's not on you to handle all of those costs. It's on you to show the value of what you're adding. And then customers, I always say, you do well by your customers. You keep them happy. They'll open their wallets. Bingo. That is totally it. If you if you show someone the solution they've been looking for, it just right. solves, yeah, everything it's solves itself. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Okay, and so then we've got one last offer we haven't we haven't touched on um, Ishikawa specifically, but you've got another person listed there now. So we'll talk about this a little oh, bit. So, Who are so, these people? Um, yeah, Ishikawa. Um, there's actually two Ishikawas. There's a father and a son, Ichiro uh -huh. and Keaoru Ishikawa. And they were present, they were part of the Japanese Union of Engineers that were present during Deming's time in Japan. So he originally went over um, as part of the rebuilding of Japan with General MacArthur and gave a series of lectures over about six weeks where he talked about his concepts and um, Ishikawa's were there and present as part of that Union of, of Engineers and really kind of sucked all that up and were sponges to that and then took those ideas and ran with it. And we can really kind of credit the Ishikawas in taking the ideas of the three before them, you know, in terms of quality, plus the ideas of Gilbreth and making it real, turning uh, it into something usable and showing um, that you could use this in real life. Yeah. And there's a, a really famous episode between Deming and the, um, the folks like the Ishikawas where one of the things after World War II, Japan was struggling to feed itself, right? Its uh, economy had, had literally been wiped off um, the planet. And he basically said, you can no longer sustain yourself and feed yourself internally. You have to turn outwards. And he used cities like Chicago as an example and saying Chicago cannot produce enough food to feed itself. It has to rely on farms throughout the country to be able to feed itself. 
Japan needs to do the same thing. And it was sort of some of those kind of episodes and conversations, Ishikawa went, oh yeah, we need to take these ideas and make them real and Mm -hmm. turn things around. And then they worked with companies like Toyota and some of the other big companies uh, in Japan to start instilling these concepts, turning them to real. And this is where we then start to see the emergence of the Toyota system and Lean and then ultimately Six Sigma and some of these kind of things. Um, now, their biggest contribution personally are what we call the seven tools of quality. They believe that there were seven simple tools, things like Pareto charts and control charts and histograms and flow charts that you can use to improve. And that was really, for me, the the point where it all became real because they closed the loop, right? So Deming and these guys had said, you really need to do the planning, the doing, the checking, and the acting, right? And before you can act, you really need to have the information to act upon. And that's where Ishikawa's really helped is they solidified that check or study stage by providing these tools and then using them to show how they could improve things in their system. Out of this then comes Kaizen and other concepts that we know uh, today and are just part and parcel of lean conversations. And then out of things like lean come agile DevOps and all the things we know today in their shiny object stage and that you can trace them directly back through through Ishikawa. Yeah. They're the most fun to read about because it's stuff that we use. You know yes. I mean? Yeah. They, yeah. It feels like they were the original workshoppers, kind of. Yes. And and that's what I'm saying, right? They don't they don't just rely on the ideas or this concepts. Uh, Deming was Deming used um, could demonstrate through exercises. He had something called a red bead experiment where he could demonstrate things, but it wasn't so clear in the everyday work world until Ishikawa kind of put it in a place in Japan. And that's what everybody started to say, oh, this stuff actually works, <laughs> right? It's not just theory. And I see the same with service management today. Yep. It's not, It's and I am a trainer and was a trainer. It's not just the going to the class. It's not just uh, reading the books and that. It's actually going and starting to use the ideas and putting them in a place. And you kind of have this moment that what I call the epiphany where you're like, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, it works. So why? <laughs> right. <laughs> Seeing is believing. Yes. Okay. So yes, exactly. Mr. Cardinal, where can people connect with you and learn more? Uh, I'm on all sorts of ser- social media. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn for sure. Uh, you can uh, connect with me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, actually, and a number of other social media. Uh, and you can reach out to me at mcardinal at thirdera.com as well. That's my email at work. Um, would love to have conversations with people and uh, talk to them about this stuff. Awesome. Or catch them at the next event. Thank you for being on Ticket Volume, Michael. I really appreciate the invite. I've been wanting to talk with you and chat with you, Matt. You and I have known each other for a while, so this is fantastic. I knew you'd bring the thunder this week. So <laughs> All right. Thank good. you. And for All our right, audience, sir. thanks for listening to this episode. We've got a bunch more out there and more coming soon. You know, we were talking about the back to basics. That's coming up. Barclay Ray, we're going to record in a few weeks, and he listed that as his number one topic. So make sure you subscribe so you get an alert when Barclay's episode comes out. You can also submit a specific topic or guest by DMing me, leaving a comment on our LinkedIn page, or just yelling really loudly. Someone will get it to me. 
And speaking of that, if you did like today's podcast and want to share feedback, please leave us a review or share with someone else. You know that the algorithms are always going to reward us for those interactions. This podcast is brought to you by Invigate, the all-in-one IT service and asset management system that helps organizations with world-class IT support teams. If you are looking for a solution to build help desks without big headaches of long implementations, large total cost of ownership, you're going to love Invigate. In fact, IT teams from NASA, Toyota, and McDonald's use Invigate to manage requests, automate workflows, and centralize inventory data so they can focus on delivering better service. Because remember, good service is good business. (laughs) 